Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 181. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to celebrate the 15th anniversary of Meet the Robinsons. You know, I did not see this film when it came out in movie theaters. In fact, I didn't see it for a few years until after it had been on DVD. So this one eluded me for a while. So this was released in 2007, which would have put us college age. Yeah. We had not met yet. So obviously we didn't see this together. Uh, So I can kind of see where at that age it would have escaped you. I saw it in theaters at the time, I loved it. Uh, I love that uh, even though this was based on a book, it was loosely based on the source material. And I love that it was so inspired by a Walt Disney quote, which is keep moving forward. Yeah. I, I, the fact that they kept weaving that in and out. You know, I'm, I'm actually I'm going to hold on that. I, I'm going to hold on that because I think it's a part of a bigger discussion later. But I think... The, to your point, what I love is that it is it's it is in a way tied to Walt Disney. Um, I think you can ask the question: Was the quote used a little too much? But that'll be a part of of one, of a conversation when we really break down the plot here. And I think for me, the question is: How has my opinion changed over the years? Yeah, fifteen years later, that on top of many other things is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date with all the new releases. We meet Lewis, a child who was left at an orphanage by his mother as an infant. He is now 12 years old and is a daydreaming inventor. When he continues to scare off potential adopters, he decides that he must find his birth mother using a memory scanning machine. He stays up all night working on his machine, much to the dismay of his roommate Goob, and enters it into his school science fair. At the science fair, we meet Wilbur Robinson, a 13-year-old from the future, who is in search of quote unquote the bowler hat guy who stole one of his father's two time machines. Bowler hat guy arrives at the science fair, sabotaging Lewis's invention before he steals it for his own benefit. Lewis tears apart his book of inventions out of frustration, but Wilbur convinces him to fix the scanner in exchange for meeting his biological mother. So in other words, Wilbur will take him in the time machine to meet his biological mother if he fixes the scanner. Lewis does uh, does not believe that Wilbur is from the future, so to show him that he's being truthful, they travel to the future. However, for a brief moment, they have an argument where Lewis says, well, if you have a time machine, you can just take me to go see my mother. And as they struggle through that, their time machine crashes and is destroyed. Lewis agrees to fix the machine in exchange for, again, meeting his mother. So the two head back to the Robinsons' home. Wilbur tells Lewis 
to stay in the garage and insists on hiding his unique hair under a hat. Lewis, however, accidentally ends up in the house and meets the very large and eccentric Robinson family, except for Cornelius Robinson, Wilbur's father, who is also an inventor and out of town on business. Meanwhile, Bowler Hat Guy and his evil hat, Doris, have arrived to find Lewis. After the Robinsons fight him off, they offer to adopt him. Wilbur removes the hat, exposing Lewis's hair, and we learn, as this all kind of unfolds, that he is in fact Cornelius as a child. Lewis runs off after all of this happens. Uh, that's because Wilbur admits that he was never going to take him to see his birth mother, but the bowler hat guy intercepts and promises to do so if Lewis fixes the memory scanner. When he does, Bowler Hat Guy and Doris betray him and tie him up and reveal themselves to actually be Goob, bitter about the sleepless night that led to a lost Little League championship. We also learn that Doris was a rejected invention that Lewis had designed, so this was their means of getting back at him. They travel back in time so Goob can sell the memory scanner as his own, but Doris betrays him and begins to take over the world, because that was Doris's plan the whole time. Lewis travels back to the past and promises to never invent Doris, in that, you know, in that case, it makes her disappear, because she, it, it's a hat. Um, it, it's never been invented. That basically ends the chaos and restores the world back to normal. In the future, Cornelius and Lewis meet, and we learn that the memory scanner kick-started their career, so Lewis agrees to go back to the science fair. Wilbur first takes Lewis back to meet his mother before taking him to the science fair, but Lewis decides to let her go. We go back to the science fair, and this is where the memory machine is fixed, but not before Goob is awoken by Lewis who ends up not falling asleep during his Little League game, and they win the championship. And it is there that Lewis impresses everybody at the science fair and is adopted by one of the judges, Lucille, and her husband, Bud, who we obviously see later on in the future at the Robinson home. So right from the jump, this is one of the saddest introductions in the history of any Disney film. And we've had a lot of really sad ones. And I am comfortable enough going on record saying that this is one of the saddest and it is for sure one of the most forgotten about. Uh, I definitely agree that it's one of the most forgotten about and it is certainly up there among the saddest. Uh, not just intros, but if you think down the long line of mother and children being separated, like Bambi, like Dumbo. Uh, I mean, it's always gut-wrenching, right? But I think that there's a big difference when it's an animal versus seeing it played out with humans. I For think sure. that's the biggest difference here. Yeah, I think that when you see it play out with that mother and how conflicted she is, I mean, you're always sad when you see it in an animal, but it's. I think some of that is you're just predisposed to being sympathetic towards an animal. But you connect when you see a human being because, well, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We are human beings. So you can connect with that char 
character easier than you can connect with an elephant, for example. They also milked this scene for all it is worth. Yeah, they did. It's raining, which is stylistically beautiful, by the way. I mean, we've we've seen the hand-drawn rain, but this obviously is a computer-generated effect, but we've I don't think we've seen like this heavy rain prolonged like this. It's not really until Frozen where you really see Disney lean into the weather quite like this. But sure. it's not just the rain. It's these like washed out sepia tones. They really do. I, I don't want to say drag it out because the scene doesn't feel long, but they lean in hard here and, and it totally works. And then it's counterbalanced with the introduction of Goob. Yes, you do see Lewis as a 12-year-old, but really, in this next scene, it's Goob that steals the show. Um, The dark bags under his eyes, I get it. His obsession with baseball and his frustration that nobody else can play to the level that he can, I get it. So you go from this really sad, tragic, heart-wrenching scene to this light-hearted, funny character, and it kind of brings you right back into the fun of what this film is going to be. Because the film, it is very whimsical. It is. I love that it's a rant, but because he's so tired and so monotone, it's hilarious. It's a great setup, great character development for Goob, and great character development for Lewis here, because he he's listening, but he's not really hearing what Goob is saying because he's just so focused on his invention. I kind of find it hard to believe that Lewis did have such a hard time getting adopted because, like, so what? He's a nerdy kid. He's not a delinquent, you know? Yeah, I think they leaned a little too much into people being off-put by the fact that he was a scholar and that he was creative and that he didn't play a sport. Using that logic, Goob shouldn't even be there right now. Right. Oh, that's a really great point. So, um, and it starts with the Harringtons, who they need to get off their high horse. I understand that Mr. Harrington has a peanut allergy, and it was a very big accident, but, like, that's an example, because he says, well, what sports do you like? Because they kind of brush off the fact that he's into inventing. So I, I get the point that Disney was trying to make, but to your point... I do find it slightly hard to believe that nobody wanted him. Even if he didn't get doused in peanut butter, I still think that the sports thing was too much of a knock against Lewis for for this couple to want to adopt him, which is I don't it that just seems a little ridiculous for the sake of setting up that Lewis has been there for a long time. He hasn't found a family yet. They even go so far as to make the point of him saying, I'm going to be 13 next year. It's going to be even harder for me to become adopted. I mean, they really are trying to raise the stakes, but I just feel like he's such a likable kid. I just don't feel like it was enough of a believable reason that he wouldn't have been adopted. Right. 124 adoption interviews he goes through. Um and he doesn't have anybody. Um, I think that everything that happens here and in the following scene when 
Lewis is speaking to Mildred um, about. Mildred is is obviously the person that runs this orphanage. Um, it, it's a very powerful scene for him, and it's very sad, too, because you not only feel bad for the fact that he's been there for so long, you don't just feel bad for the fact that he's cognizant of the fact that at the age of 13, it's harder to be adopted as a teenager, but it's also sad to watch him go through this with the Harringtons, and I hate to say it, but he's sort of spoken down to. So while I do find it hard to believe that he would have been passed up that many times, and perhaps they were trying to send the message that offbeat kids aren't as suitable. I don't know what point they were trying to make. I think that there was a message there they were trying to send, um, but perhaps a bit heavy-handed, but nonetheless, all of this works as character development for Lewis, and it works in fleshing him out, fleshing out his backstory, and making him a very sympathetic character. It also does pay off for his motivation to make the brain scanner, because at this point he's like, well, I don't need anybody to adopt me. I'm just going to go find my biological mother. But there is no trace of her, so that's what gives him the idea to do the brain scanner and try. He's going to try to scan his memory so he'll know who to look for. Yeah, he's so headstrong, but I love that quality about him. I love that he is so headstrong and that he wants so badly to finish this invention and and, and he's so convinced that he can make it work. It's amazing to me in 10 minutes, because that's really about the runtime at this point, in 10 minutes how much you can flesh out your main character. Yeah, and I mean, we are obviously going to break down the characters more later on, but there, I, I think it's worth noting now that there is such a balance with Lewis because, to your point, he is so headstrong. That could have very quickly been a slippery slope into him becoming dislikable. But he's such an endearing character, he never really loses the audience in that way. Right. He's not the all-knowing child quip machine. He never comes off as if he's speaking down to anybody. Um, Like, it's so easy. Like, they could have easily turned him into, like, Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. It's very funny how Sheldon speaks to people, but at the root of it, it's incredibly obnoxious. Oh, how dare you, sir? Sheldon is always lovable no matter what is coming out of his mouth or who he's talking down to. Well, yeah, but it's hard to do. Well, I'd say it's hard to do with a 12 year old kid, but they've had a spinoff going for like five or six <laughs> yeah. years that continues to be a success. So what do I know? Speaking of likable characters, my spirit animal within the Disney canon is in this film. And I, I hate that she is so oft forgotten about Lucille, who's got the caffeine patch. I thought it was Joan Cusack at first. It's not. Lori Metcalf. Another Sheldon tie-in. Oh, yeah, she's great. Um, but yeah, it's you know what I like about her introduction is that again, you could easily fall into the slippery slope of mad scientist, right? Like really eccentric mad scientist. She's a genius. 
yes, because of her caffeine. But I love the fact that they put the caffeine patch in there because it breaks the mold. She's not just like the female Doc Brown, right? Like super eccentric and wild. Um, she invented this thing to keep herself awake so that she could keep inventing and researching. Again, a character who, in the beginning, you just think is a, not even a secondary character. She is as much a background character as you're going to find. Having no idea that eventually she's going to adopt Lewis. It's such a brilliant introduction to her and it gets better on multiple viewings. Once you've seen the film and you know what to expect, it gets better and better each time. Right, because you are so distracted by the humor of it. But you're making me realize now, too. I mean, obviously, I've always loved her because of the caffeine patch. But she is not only an important character to the story, but like I never realized what a progressive character she is, too, because she is utilizing her own invention, She's overusing it because there are 12 of them, but don't think for a second. I would shoot coffee into my veins if I could. It's not a lie. I've seen her try. (laughs) No, if this was a real, it's, it's brilliant. It's probably incredibly bad for your heart, but I would totally wear a caffeine patch or seven. And with that being said, uh, um, you know what is funny to me and has always been kind of distracting in this scene? Lizzie um, with her fire ants. It's funny, but to me, like, you may as well call her Lizzie Adams. She looks so much like Wednesday Adams that for a brief moment, I wonder whether or not it's a throw to a tribute or something of that nature because she just looks too much like an iconic character to be her own character. That is a really good point. I kind of think her looking like Wednesday aesthetically is a coincidence, but I don't think the goth element is accidental because this film, one of the things that I loved so much about it the first time I saw it was all the hat tips to these other genres. Like, you know, they, in the dinner scene, we're going to break this down later, but they do like a Kung Fu parody with the frogs. They, when they take out the bowler hat, it's a gangster parody. And then later on at the very end where Doris takes power, it's a zombie parody. So I absolutely loved that about it the first time I saw it. And I think that that's sort of where Lizzie comes in is it, it might be a nod, a wink and a nod to the Adams family. I also love the introduction we get here to Wilbur, but also the bowler hat guy. I like the introduction for bowler hat guy more than Wilbur here. Because you know you kind of can't trust Wilbur. You know he's sly. Again, he's got maybe 10 seconds worth of screen time, so you don't know him well enough yet, but you know him well enough to know not to necessarily trust him. But getting introduced to the bowler hat guy and everything that happens from the moment he gets onto the screen, the look of him, the way that, as it turns out, Doris, we don't know who it is, but Doris, the way that she sabotages the brain scanner, the memory scanner, it's such a great introduction. I agree, especially because this scene is so chaotic. They are not only throwing so many characters at you, because this is a huge cast, but... There's also 
you know, the inventions going awry and the volcano exploding and the fire ants escaping. It is intentionally a chaotic scene. But what's amazing is that they are able to bring all of these seemingly random characters full circle. And and that is, I think, one of the main elements throughout this movie is that everything seems so random, but it totally has a purpose in the end. What I like most about this scene is that it does, this is, we're still in the science fair. It's a great mix of the funny, to your point with the chaos, but the drama. Because when the bowler hat guy sabotages the memory scanner, immediately everybody just thinks, oh, Lewis messed up again. And there he is apologizing, and his teacher is just like, not now. Just not now, Lewis. Really, one of the few people who's been in his corner, even he has given up on him at this point because Lewis has a track record. This is the roller coaster. As funny as it is, it all comes crashing down very quickly, and they do it so well. See, they they do it well. I will agree with you on that because to me this is insanely frustrating. We were just talking about how it's unbelievable that a kid like Lewis who's got so much going for him would have trouble getting adopted. And now it's like you see all of his capabilities. He didn't just make, you know, a planet diorama for the science fair. He built a working invention an almost working invention. Okay, so it goes awry. But do you see any of these other kids having the wherewithal to create something like this? Let alone to to conceptualize it and then execute it. And poor Lewis gets absolutely no credit. I I mean, I don't disagree with you, but this is also the same boy that can't get adopted. You know what I'm saying? For the, for all the same reasons. So, I get where you're coming from. Um, but I, I guess it's just not where they were going with the character. I don't, I don't know. I can't defend it. I'm just saying it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you. Well, that's it. We're supposed to feel sorry for him because if you give him a pass, I I mean, I guess that would be realistic where it's like, you know what? You're a a responsible kid. You're just having a bad day and then they let it go. The setup for what happens next is not going to be as strong. Correct. So we leave the science fair and you get this really brutal scene where Lewis is just tearing apart his notebook where he's got all of his inventions. And you feel for him because you know how much these inventions mean for him. So to watch him sort of give up on those and give up on himself for a kid that is so headstrong, it's a really tough scene. But again, the roller coaster ride because here comes Wilbur and here's the comic relief and he's got the coupon that he's trying to use as a police badge and it immediately brings the funny right back into it. And then they jump into their time machine. This is all happening very fast, mind you. And then we get to go to Todayland. Todayland is everything. I love it. I feel like there are so many nods to the parks here, and maybe it's just me reading into it. I mean, Today Land being the most obvious. Right. And then there's the building that looks like Space Mountain. But to me, this might just be me. The time machine itself looks to me like 
what you travel back in in Spaceship Earth when you program your future. Yes. And then they superimpose your head on it. I don't know. Maybe it's me, but I I thought that was a nod to Spaceship Earth. Here's the thing. I think most of this movie has that mid-century modern sci-fi from the 50s look. You know, it kind of looks like Tomorrowland meets Epcot meets Jimmy Neutron meets the Jetsons meets, you know, like any of these like genres, any of these characters, any of these other universes that you've seen, throw a dart at them. And it pulls from that, but not in a way that it feels like a ripoff. That's what I was going to say. This reminds me most of the Jetsons where it's like 50s futuristic. I love it. I love the aesthetic of this film. Oh, me too. I also love after the conflict that is Wilbur and Lewis arguing back and forth about fix my time machine. I'll take you to see your mom. You get bowler hat guy I want to call him goob but he's not goob yet he's bowler hat guy he has taken the memory scanner to Inventco because he's trying to sell it off as his own for the wealth so that he and Doris can get back at Lewis who's actually Cornelius this scene is everything for bowler hat guy He is so eccentric. He is so funny. And what I love about him and what makes him so unique from, I mean, most other Disney villains, he never really takes himself too seriously. He is so unique in that way. We've seen plenty of eccentric Disney villains, but we've never, I mean, not often at least, I'm not going to say never, but I'll say not very often do you get a Disney villain that is also the film's comic relief? That's a really interesting point. You're right. And it really takes off in this scene. Well, I guess you could sort of make the argument, is Bowler Hat Guy really the villain? Because eventually it's going to be revealed that Doris is big bad. And this is actually where they set up that idea because he sort of is being not controlled by her just yet, but he's so out of his depth. He needs Doris to, you know, she's holding up cue cards with what he should say. Right. So this is where it starts alluding to Doris is really the mastermind. We don't know how, how much, how very much she is in control just yet, though. Correct. Um, and it's it's just a really good plant early on. Now we get to the Robinson home. And we start meeting these really, I mean, again, I'm going to use the word at nauseum in this, in this conversation, eccentric. Eccentric characters. And similarly to the scene that we have at the school fair, We meet Carl, the family robot, but he looks just like the characters from, I think it was the, I think DreamWorks made that film Robots with Robin Williams. Yes. He looks like a discarded extra from from that movie that came out a couple of years before this. So 
as much as I like the character and as fun as he is from the jump, it's distracting. It, it's Wednesday Adams all over again. He also sounds like Robin Williams in those first couple of lines, like to a point where I forgot and had to look up who the voice was. Uh, as it goes on, he doesn't sound nearly anything like him. But in those first couple of lines, you know, it's it's almost what what's the uh, the hearing equivalent of a double take? Uh, I don't know. Listen twice. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> um. What I love about this scene, too, is perhaps the biggest plant uh, in the whole film that Lewis is Cornelius. This whole time, Wilbur's having a massive freak out. My family can't see you. Uh, They can't know that I bought you from the past. Uh, And he asks him to cover up his hair because that's the biggest giveaway. And upon your first viewing it's totally plausible that a haircut would be a giveaway to a certain time period. But in this case, because Lewis's hair is so unique, the family would have figured out who he was right away. Yeah. um, I like the plant. I like, um, I like the fact that I feel like none of us figured it out right away. Upon the first viewing. No, definitely I, I not on the first viewing. I did not see this coming. But, I mean, when you go back and watch it the second time and the third time, it's like, it's so clear as day. Like, how did we not figure this out? But I think they're just throwing so much at you that they were able to creatively hide it. And they kind of played with you as the audience the entire time. I think that's why these characters are so over the top. Yeah, because the introduction to the Robinsons is wild. Yes. It's totally wild. You get Uncle Fritz, Aunt Petunia, Uncle Spike, and Uncle Dimitri, the twins, Cousin Laszlo, Uncle Gaston. You have Franny Robinson, who is uh, Cornelius's wife and Wilbur's mother. And you have Uncle Art, who, when I saw this movie for the first time, I said, I know this voice, Uncle Art, and I cannot place him. We'll talk about the cast later, but I will just say that as a person that is a big fan of Batman and has been my entire life and even grew up watching reruns of the television show, the fact that I didn't pick up on who voiced this character right away still disappoints me to this day. Because he sounds like Kronk in his first yes, couple of lines. he does. He really does. And because he's got this... this He's a superhero spaceman that delivers pizzas. I mean, it's just, it's organized chaos. And the funny thing is, too, is that they go through this family tree in a matter of about 30 seconds. It's not like Encanto, where even though you have an, a huge cast, we have an entire song dedicated to it, which is thoroughly broken down and recapped for us at the end of the song. Yeah. This is just 30 seconds. Don't blink or you'll miss it. I love, too, when Lewis asks Wilbur, what does his father look like? He just, oh my uh, God. Tom Selleck. And it's literally just a picture of Tom Selleck. Again, you think it's something that's a quick throwaway line, but they really do deliver on it because, as we will discuss later, Tom Selleck does voice him. Yeah. Um, so you get this 
truly insane scene. And then, hey, we're getting ready to go down the hill on the roller coaster again. Shortly thereafter, Bowler Hat Guy has now traveled back in time again. Because he's back and forth on his time machine. And he encounters his childhood self. And he starts talking to Goob. And Goob, at this point, has gotten beaten up because he dropped the baseball at the Little League Championship, because he was up all night, because Lewis didn't let him sleep, because he was working on the memory scanner, which is why all of this is now happening with Goob is the bowler hat guy. But before the really eccentric get angry, be angry, don't listen to other people spiel that old Goob gives to young Goob, he has a moment where he's very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get away, and he's trying to walk away, and he kind of turns and looks back at his younger self and has this really, I mean, I think it's deeper than most people give it credit for, this very deep inner monologue, but he actually speaks it out loud with his previous form. It It's so good. And I think that you don't know right away that he's goob, but when you watch the movie the second time, the third time, and et cetera, and so forth, it unintentionally becomes a very sad moment, but it works. It so works. Yeah, this is, I think, the perfect instance of where this film has rewatchability because on first viewing, you just think that Bowler Hat Guy and Goob are sort of kindred spirits, and Bowler Hat Guy, who has been the outcast, and he's so angry harboring all these feelings takes pity on the kid who is trying to deal with these emotions, who is on the cusp of good versus evil right here. And it's good enough at surface value when you don't realize that they are the same person. And then to your point, yeah, on, on second and third viewing, you see how much depth there is to the scene and how much of a huge character moment it really is. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Let's talk about the dinner scene, shall we? Yes. Lewis is having dinner with the Robinson family. And first off, I love how when they ask where he's from, he says Canada, and they go, no, no, it's called Northern Montana now. (laughs) Um, Like, what happened? I don't. I guess we're gonna find out in a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but it's not quite as chaotic as their introduction, but it's still totally whimsical. It's a ton of fun as Carl is serving them this meal. The frogs that Franny has taught to sing are doing a. They're doing a, a dinner performance for them. Um, it's, it's just like one of the most fun dining scenes I think we've had in a Disney film. I I don't know of too many other dinner scenes other than Be Our Guest where we're going to spend this much time really talking about it. And I love the style shift 
at one point where they have the meatball fight. And this is what I was talking about before, where it takes on sort of like a Kung Fu film. Yeah. But it's not just, it, it, it's everything about it. It's stylistically how they put the, the filters over the shots. It's the dialogue and how they're like speaking in almost a staccato to each other. And, and the lines almost seem, um, they're badly dubbed. Yeah. I mean, they nailed the genre, but it shouldn't really make sense, and yet it all works. This scene, as well as the introduction to the family, is an example of just throw a bunch of stuff in a blender and see what comes of it. And more times than not, it does not work because it doesn't feel like it should fit. But because of... The tone, the feel, the look, the attitude, the score, everything in this film, it plays favorably. And it really shouldn't, but it does. And that's the brilliance of it. Yes. Even trickling down to frogs in a bar. And this now gets to the point you made of where it becomes like a borderline gangster film. Because the frogs are in their own bar, the bowler hat guy shows up, and Doris has, like, a little mini Doris that takes over the lead singer of this house band. It's so great. I love I love the design of the little froggy bar, too. But, yeah, the gangster spoof is hilarious, especially when the frogs take out the bowler hat and they throw it in the trunk of a car. It's, it's just so, so brilliant. It is totally brilliant. And what I love, too, is in the chaos that was this dinner scene, Carl comes out. It's on the tail end of dinner. Carl comes out with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich machine. Of course, it's built internally in the robot, but it's a throw to what happened to Mr. Harrington, and it literally happens again. And... All of the Robinsons cheers to the failure, which is usually not something that you would see, but they embrace the failure because you can learn from it. And if you don't fail, you don't learn. It's such a great motto for the film, but I think it's a great lesson to learn and it's a great lesson to take away after you've already seen the movie. I certainly agree that it is a great message to put in there, but I feel like it almost doesn't make sense until you've seen the movie again and you know who Lewis is and why they are putting so much emphasis on the failure. At first, I I guess on first viewing, it just feels like they are the polar opposites of everything that he's used to. And you can appreciate that finally someone is throwing him a bone and not browbeating him that his invention didn't work or that in this case that he couldn't fix it. Um, So I I think it's passable enough at face value, but it definitely means more the second time around. Yeah, I think as does the keep moving forward thing because they say it over and over and over and over again. Um and at this point, I, I we've probably heard it a dozen times up to this point in the movie. I love it as a fan of 
Disney. I'm sure you feel the same way. And I think it is a great motto to live by. But if you're not a Disney fan, or if you are a lukewarm Disney fan that sees this movie for the first time, is it too much? And there's a part of me, and it's cynical, and I hate to say it, but there's a part of me that feels like if you don't love Disney movies and you just happen to see this one, it you're probably not going to take to it the same way a, a, a true Disney fan. And when I mean Disney, I, I don't just mean Disney as a company. I mean Walt Disney. You're probably just not going to take to it the way that they meant for it to be taken to. I would agree. It's going to seem over-the-top repetitive, but I think the way that they wove that theme into this whole story was very well done. For sure. I also like the uh, the plan not being well thought out with Goob or Bowler Hat Guy, however you want to play it. When he realizes that he, he had the frog that he took over, but it wasn't a very good, well-thought-out plan because he's so small. Then he goes and gets a dinosaur, but the dinosaur has short arms and he can't reach what he needs him to reach. And he says, this plan was not very well-thought-out. It's a gag that runs a couple of times, but every time they run, it hits. And we've talked on this show so many times about when a movie relies on a joke that if it doesn't hit the first time it's probably not going to land the second time and how a detriment it becomes when you go back to it two, three, four times. In this case, it's funny the first time and it's funny the second time. It's a well-placed, well-written gag. I agree because it's coming from a place that's so unexpected. I mean, you know that Goob is not in control of anything, but to have... A frog and a dinosaur throw that back in his face. It's it's absolutely hysterical. And it's it's directed at him, not Doris, because those were his ideas. Right. He's still the puppet on the string for Doris at this point, but he's taking the hit for for all of these things not working out. For sure. Do you want to go back down the hill on the roller coaster? Sure. Because all of this is happening. It's a it, it's a laugh a minute. And then the Robinsons offer to adopt Lewis. And it's so wonderful. And they're the only people that have ever, like, understood him. And then Wilbur pulls the hat off and they tell him he's got to go. And he can't be adopted now. Wilbur may as well have pulled the rug out from underneath him. Ouch. Here's the only thing, though, and I don't want to take away from such an important moment. It's a great moment for Lewis, and you can see where they fit him perfectly. But what I want to know is, why in such a huge family, like, what did Lewis do for them to want him? Uh, I guess they, well, that's the thing, right? It's like, he hasn't spent an awful lot of time with them. It's a day. That's it. I guess they just see their... I mean, obviously, they see Cornelius in him. 
I guess that's what it is. I guess they just they see how he fits the mold. He fits the family. It's not that he's gone out of his way to do any one thing. I think it's just his general disposition and his demeanor that they connect to. And obviously we find out by the end of the film why they're connecting with it. Um, so, I mean, that doesn't bother me. I, what you're saying makes sense. And I feel like a lot of people are going to back you on that. But um, I kind of feel like they didn't necessarily need him to do anything other than be himself. Which is kind of what's gotten him rejected the whole time, was being himself. Right, and I guess that's it. I mean, there's there's not like a big character moment where he wins them over. It's not like... And I don't want to be the next person to rag on Lewis for not being able to f- make an invention work, but it's not like he fixed the peanut butter and jelly and they all went, oh, wow. Right. We'll keep you, you know. Right. There wasn't an instance where, he, you know, he didn't save them from Doris and the bowler hat guy. He didn't have like that big moment where they would be like, we need you on this team. So it's wonderful that he gets that anyway. I don't want to I don't want to gloss over it. I don't want to make it seem like he really had to earn it because his personality, his character, it should have been enough to do that in the first place, but it's just I don't know. I mean, it, we get what we want as the audience because he finally gets the adoption offer and he's ultimately getting what he wanted and now well <laughs> that's the irony right as the audience we're rooting against it because we know that I, I, you should have put the pieces together by now right and as the audience we sort of know he can't accept this offer so it is very bittersweet in that way but I just um, I don't know that's one thing that seems a bit odd to me is that after having only spent a day with him that they would want to bring him into the family. And there's no, you just need like some sort of throwaway line, like, gee, we wish Wilbur could have a brother just like you or something like that. And, and maybe Wilbur wants a sibling or whatever. You, you just needed some, a little bit more motivation for the family to make a decision like this. Sure. Um, so we move on from here because Lewis runs off after... Wilbur admits that he was never going to really take him to meet his mother because he knows that he can't. Because I don't think up to this point we know that Wilbur that uh, that Lewis is Cornelius just yet. Um, but he acknowledges that he was never going to take him because obviously, if he does, it's going to change everything. No, we don't know at this point because Goob is the one who does the reveal. Correct. And that's where I'm going. Goob, because he needs Lewis to show him, literally show him how to turn on the memory scanner because he failed at InventCo because he didn't even know how to turn the thing on. He promises to take him to meet his mother in his time machine if Lewis helps him. And the animation is great, I think, because Lewis just like looks at Wilbur with such scorn and goes off with the bowler hat guy. It's a really good scene. Yeah, he's practically got lasers coming out of his eyes. 
And the goob reveal, it it still hits no matter how many times you've seen the movie. There is nothing like the first time you see it, though. It's the best the first time, but it's still, I, I, to me, it's just as good every time you see it. I remember, like, having my mind blown the first time. Now, upon multiple viewings, I'll be honest, I feel like Goob's motivation seems a little weak. That because he was tired and he missed the catch, his life was on a downward spiral after that. As if he hasn't had it hard enough already. Like, that should be your motivation. That... Lewis, the inventor, was always the front runner to get adopted. And he had so many, you know, 124 interviews, but maybe Goob only had like 10 or something like that. That I feel like would have been more of a motivation than I missed the catch and, and so forth and so on. And nobody removes him from the orphanage when it closes. He just becomes a recluse child living in an abandoned building. Again, that is a big reach. It is. Um, but it's still fun, and it's 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 not supposed to be funny. I think it's unintentionally funny. Um, but I think what really works here is the Doris reveal, that Doris was the entire time the brains behind the operation because she was manipulating and double-crossing Goob from the start. He was just a vehicle to, I, to get her what she needed. I think that this was a better reveal and it's again in plain sight all along and the more you see it the better it gets i also love that this was one of lewis's failed inventions oh yeah i love it that's another brilliant tie back to again something that seems random why a bowler hat it's that he tried this was like his first robot that failed yeah yeah um and I love, and then the movie kind of, the pacing has been good up to this point, but I, I feel like the movie, I'm not going to say it rushes to the end, but from this point to the end of the movie, it kind of happens really quick. Um, A little bit. I do love the uh, the zombie parody, though, in Doris's downfall. Yes. That's like the last, I think, well-paced scene before things really pick up speed, but I just... I, I love the whole sequence. I think it's great. Yeah, and I love that from that point to the end of the movie, you get you get this Back to the Future 2 element where Biff has taken over. Biff has killed George McFly. Biff has married Lorraine. Biff is the stepfather of Marty. The town has fallen into hell, and he doesn't care. But this mirrors that, but it's unique enough where you don't immediately make the connection. For other areas in this film where you go, oh, geez, this looks like Robot. Oh, geez, this looks like Wednesday Adam. It's so diff. It's very much the same as Back to the Future, the second one in particular, but it's so different at the same time that it doesn't feel like they pulled too much from it. Here's the only thing I don't love about it. I don't think Lewis should have seen himself or had a conversation with himself. Not just because it breaks the laws of time travel as we know them in the movies. Yes. But and I don't care what they tell you in 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 Avengers. Back <laughs> yeah. to the Future is the golden standard. 
Yes, truth. But I feel like it does a disservice to the character because I'm totally fine with Lewis knowing who he is, knowing who he's going to grow up to be and interacting with his family because this is the motivation that he has found for himself now. He's been looking for a family this entire time. He found a family that wants to adopt him and now he knows that even though he can't be adopted... I mean, he still could because ultimately, right, he'll end up living in the future and he could still make all these inventions. But you still have to get him from point A to point B because he still has to marry Franny and have this family. So he does have to go back to the past. And if he doesn't go back to the past, then Doris is going to take over the world. Right. So he does. He can't be adopted by them. But the point is, he found the family he knows this is what his motivation is. He knows that he loves his family and that is enough to what altogether now keep moving forward. Yep. Uh, so that inner strength and, and that motivation now is more than enough for me. He didn't need to tell himself that he didn't need to be his own father figure. I feel like that kind of weakened it a little bit. It, it only weakened it for me because it, defies to your point it defies the laws of time travel and everything that we know about it thanks to robert zemeckis um but we do get a little bit more time travel because wilbur makes good on the promise and takes him to the moment where his mother leaves him at the orphanage and i think that this scene is great um because that's the moment where lewis realizes He's got the family he needs already. It's just not right now. Exactly. I wanted a little bit more from Wilbur in this scene, though, because this is his dad. I mean, forget that it's his grandma, but this is his dad. So to be able to actually see what happened to him, what made him the man that he is to you, I needed a little bit more from him. Um. It, yeah. Um. It, it would have um, it would have added a layer of drama. You probably didn't need it, but I'm not adverse to having seen it either. But I think the point was it's truly Lewis's scene to have Wilbur do anything. I think it kind of takes away from the bigger picture, right? Because you do get that moment where they say not goodbye, but. Wilbur does tell him that his, he's his best friend. Right. And I think that's such a cool moment between the two of them because Lewis has gotten everything he needs at this point, but it's great that they can have that relationship work on both levels where, you know, they're, they're the same age. They've, they've gone on this journey together. They've broke out through this journey and now, you know, Wilbur also knows that he he played a huge role in who his father becomes. Yeah, it's really, really well done. And I think that for as many reveals as they've had throughout the movie, you still get one more. And it's the crazy scientist Lucille and her husband Bud. And, uh, and it's, it's Lucille and Bud from... Every scene with the Robinsons and you it's at that moment you that you realize that that's the key 
they adopt him. They they bring him into the Robinson family. I love that they held that reveal. I love that nobody figured it out. I love that Lewis didn't figure it out, that he couldn't put the pieces yes. together. It was so well done. So well done. Right, because that's also a, a big part of Lewis's character arc, too, is that now that he knows who this family is, he's going to be patient and he's going to wait for it and he's just going to be open to it happening when it happens because he knows that it will. I also love that he goes back for Goob. Yes, that he goes back to wake Goob up so that Goob catches the ball, doesn't get beat up, and never becomes a villain. Because we know that he basically just wished Doris away and said, I'm never going to invent you, and he doesn't. But this takes it one step further, righting the wrong as far as his relationship with Goob goes. Um, no, and then the the end montage, it's just so well done because, as you said, you have no idea... Even though it's so funny, none of the other characters, like Franny, you know it's Franny with the frogs, but she's a grown-up. She doesn't look like her her past character. Neither, well, no, Lucille and Bud look the most like themselves, yeah. and nobody saw it. Didn't figure it out. Um, but again, they use the humor to disguise it, because who's watching Lucille? You just think it's a... F- a, a laugh with the caffeine patch and and that was it but i love the end sequence where it's like once once the key unlocks the rest of his future which is him getting adopted you know we get to see him making all these inventions and even though he knows he's gonna do it and even though we know what happens like you still get goosebumps watching it it's great you do the only thing that's missing for me regarding his mother is the why. We never learn why she gave him up. Mildred says at one point, sometimes it's a very difficult decision and a mother will give up a child because that's ultimately the right thing to do for the child. And I guess that's kind of what his mother did and you see that with the internal struggle twice because we get the scene twice. Mm -hmm. Um... I suppose that's supposed to be enough, but I'm just missing the why a little bit. I mean, I'm glad that they showed the internal struggle. I think that that was kind of a progressive thing for them to do at the time. Uh, Because, you know, really with other movies of this ilk, you just blame the parent for abandoning you. So in this case, they they did show the struggle. They did show that this was an act of love because she couldn't take care of him. But at the same time, I don't need that. Why? I think that's something else that would have been a disservice to Lewis because for him, his goal was always to find the family and he does, but it would go, it would totally go against the idea of keep moving forward. Very true. Very true. And I don't think that finding his mother, other than getting the brain scanner to work, I don't know that knowing who his mother is is going to change anything that he would have done. And I think that's kind of the point of the movie is not only don't look back, but it's about finding what makes you whole. And Lewis learned that he didn't need to know that to know who he is. 
Are we ready to start talking about the cast and characters here? Let's do. This is going to take a minute. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, like, no offense to a lot of the people that were in this film, but I think for the sake of keep moving forward, we kind of <laughs> just have to focus on some of the main hitters here. Sure. Jordan Fry and Daniel Hansen each voiced Lewis. It's kind of odd that you get two voice actors voicing the same character, but that's how they did it. Um, so it's really unique because I didn't know that it was two different people voicing him. Um, so it was seamless. They were both really good. I'm wondering if that had to do with like labor laws or something, but it's like you didn't cast twins. Well, yeah, usually you, w- I mean, it's not a live action film, but you'd think maybe they would cast unless they just couldn't find two kids that sounded that much alike. I mean, you don't notice it at all. And we're not, we're not talking about kid Lewis and adult Cornelius is Tom, Tom Selleck. Selleck. So I, that's, that's really interesting that there are now three voices of the same character. Correct. But I thought he was, I mean, it was seamless. They sound great, obviously, but I thought the life they gave to this character was just outstanding. He's endearing. He's funny. He's inspirational. He's everything. Ooh, I'm wondering maybe uh, maybe one of their voices started cracking and the other one had to take over. That's possible. If they cast a kid, you know, around 11, 12, 13 years old. It's possible. Look at look at Finn Wolfhard. How is he supposed <laughs> to be in Stranger Things right now? <laughs> um, I agree with you. I mean, Lewis, Lewis is great. He's, as you said, headstrong. Yeah. But perfectly balanced because he's endearing enough where he almost should have been dislikable but he never is never and neither is Wilbur who is voiced by Wesley Singerman um I love that you can't trust him right away I love that you don't really trust him for a good portion of the film but not in a way where you feel like he's got any like he's not malicious he's just mysterious um he almost comes in like the bad boy, but usually that's more of like, you know, if, if they're putting him opposite like a female lead where she just, you know, sort of crushes on him and goes along with whatever. Yeah. Uh, he does sort of come in like that cool, worldly, smooth talking guy that's just going to convince you to do whatever he says. And that that is sort of what he does to Lewis, but... It is for his own good. And he's animated in that way, too. Like, he looks like that character. Like, yes. everything you just described. It's that cowlick. Matthew Jostin voices Young Goob. Um, I love Young Goob. As much as I love Bowler Hat Guy, there's just something about Young Goob, and it says a lot about me, that I connect with. I said it before, and I'll say it again. I love this character. He is one of the most underrated and I think unfortunately characters in the canon he is so great great comic relief just such a great for for somebody and really young goob doesn't have a lot of screen time but like he is a scene stealer every time yeah every time and then Steven Anderson voices the bowler hat guy older goob Steven Hansen uh, uh Steven Anderson excuse me who also directed this film uh, voiced Bowler Hat Guy because he felt a really special, keen connection to the character. He was great. 
Those are some of the best Disney characters, though, right? Where it's like the director is trying so hard to convey an idea that you end up rolling with it because nobody can do it better. Like, look at what happened with Edna Mode. Right. Or how Joe Ramp took Heimlich. Yes. Not that he directed it, but sometimes they say, like, the best person that the best person for the job is the person that is directing it or the best person for the job is the person that wrote the character because they, they understand the character from a different place than anybody else will. They truly know the character. For sure. Not that I ever want to see this movie remade as a live action because I think it would lose so much of the fun and the humor. But if they were to do it, Bill Hader as Bowler Hat Guy. It, yeah, it would make sense. I could see it. Um, all right. Angela Bassett plays Mildred. It's a very small role, but she's Angela Bassett, and she's good in everything. No, and I love how maternal Mildred is. I love how there's that bittersweet moment at the end where Lewis does get adopted, and she's so happy and yet heartbroken at the same time because she has to let him go. Um it's just, it, it's something you don't get to see very often because I feel like, you know, who, what, what are the characters really like this that we have an example of? Miss Hannigan. Yeah. Nobody's rooting for her as much as we love Carol Burnett. Nobody is rooting for Miss Hannigan. No, um, not at all. Let's see here. Uh, Nicole Sullivan plays Franny Robinson. And what I love about this character and what I love about how Nicole Sullivan played it is that she's over the top. She's borderline nuts and immediately switches into mom mode. Yes. The, the switch from crazy eccentric Franny to mom is seamless. I also love her, the aesthetic of the character. This is one of those fifties futuristic because she's sort of got like that poodle skirt, hair tied up in a ribbon thing happening like she totally looks like she stepped out of Greece one of our favorites I'm not going to hold that against <laughs> it um, but it it works it totally works for the character and I, I love how they bring the frogs full circle for sure and then you said that at first you thought Robin Williams had voiced Carl well it was Harlan Williams uh, you want to hawk and you know talk back to something that harkens back to your your 90s heart Harlan Williams um I love him in this role. Harlan Williams is a guy that in the films that I've seen him in, I either love his character, like in, say, uh, Down Periscope, or I really dislike the character, like in Rocket Man, which oh. we're eventually going to talk about on the show. Um, but I really liked him in this role. I love Rocket Man. We're going to, I mean, we we're we have an opening next week. We do have an opening next week. Maybe we should do Rocket Man. We can go Harlan Williams to Harlan Williams. This isn't where I thought we were going with this, but now I think we kind of have to. I'm so in. All right. So, well, now you know Rocket Man's your episode next week, and I know what we're watching tonight. Um, and I guess I kind of owe it to Harlan Williams to give it another shot. But um, <laughs> I really like him here. He's funny where he needs to be funny. He's actually serious where he needs to be serious, which is not something you typically uh, 
you know, associate Harlan Williams with. But I thought that as a voice actor, he really knocked this one out of the park. Well, he's got to be the voice of reason, right? Yeah. His family's crazy. So something has to ground them. And you would think that would be Cornelius, but because he's not there, really, he is what's keeping them grounded. Right. And then Laurie Metcalf is Lucille. Um, she and Bud adopt will uh adopt I keep wanting to call him Wilbur I don't know why uh they they adopt Lewis um she's great she's crazy like I said I thought it was Joan Cusack at first um I didn't ask you this before how did you feel about a 12 year old boy having to change his name because they decided that they didn't really think he looked like a Lewis I'm I'm only th- I'm only thinking about that now. Yeah, I thought that was another one of those things that was going to be like unlocked and revealed like when they adopt him. Um I, I wish there was more reason behind it. Yeah. Like if it was Albert after Einstein, sure, no explanation needed. But I yeah, I don't know. But outside of that, Laurie Metcalf was spectacular. She was, she was, and uh, spirit animal aside, that was the most memorable part of this trailer. Was the caffeine patch because she screams because she's so overly caffeinated. Uh, but yeah, to this day, holds up, still funny, love it. Yeah. Um. And then Adam West. It's Adam West. Like, I'm so mad I didn't know it was Adam West. But Adam Adam West is Uncle Art is everything that I wanted and more. I love the eccentric pizza delivery man thing. I said it before, and I don't care that I'm repeating myself now. Everything about the character just hits. His Buck Rogers kind of looking spaceship hits. His costume hits. Everything about the character is a ton of fun. Yeah, he's great. I mean, if it can't be, nice work, pal. I'm yeah. glad it's Adam West. All right. Uh, let's talk about the music. The music really is like a character in and of itself. And we have been using a word throughout the course of this review where if you haven't figured it out now who the composer is, the word whimsical should have given it away. One Mr. Danny Elfman was the composer on this film. And I think feel like though you really have to listen for it because I think this is a different this this is such a different body of work than anything he's ever done you can hear how Nightmare Before Christmas sounds similar to Beetlejuice sounds similar to Pee Wee Herman and so forth and so like you know a Danny Elfman score when you hear it and if you listen very carefully If you're really familiar with his work, I think you would be able to pick it out. But so much of this soundtrack is also blended with these poppy songs. And what's very jarring is that there's lyrics in the film. It's not just like they went for the radio hit over the credits. This film is not a musical, but they did have actual songs playing throughout it. So I feel like Danny Elfman does sort of get buried here. He does because the singles that came off of this soundtrack, the songs with lyrics, 
had a lot of star power behind them, at least star power at the time, um, because you have The Future Has Arrived, performed by the All-American Rejects, which, not typically a band that you think you're going to associate with a Disney film, but I think they did a great job with this song. I think it's fun, I think it's a little bit of an earworm, and I think it fits. That's the thing. I'm, I'm saying this once, and I'm I'm going to be done with it. It fits the feel of the film all around. In that it's timeless. Because, and I think that's it. Danny Elfman composed it, and they sang it. And a couple of the other songs the artist wrote, as opposed to writing lyrics to Danny Elfman's right. song. But where you get this marriage is you have... At the, at the time, it was a contemporary singer. It was a popular band. Uh, so you have that pop-punky sound, but because of the composition, you still do get like that futuristic and yet nostalgic music at the same time. Like picture walking into Tomorrowland. Right. It sounds of the future and somehow also sounds nostalgic. And Danny Elfman nails that here. And I think that's why even though... Maybe the band is dated. It certainly doesn't feel like the song is. They they just, they understood the assignment. They did. The Jonas Brothers are in here performing a cover of a Kim Carnes song, Kids of the Future. And of course they got the Jonas Brothers to record for this because the Jonases were under a Disney contract. Of course. Um, and then the big, I mean really the big hit off of this uh, soundtrack was Little Wonders by Rob Thomas. It actually hit number five on the Billboard charts. Um, that's the th I remember this song yes. better than I remember this movie at the time when the movie came out. But I, I mean, I think the song is great. I think it still holds up. Um and it was actually, what I liked about it was it, it was a radio hit that came out of a movie, but it didn't sound like a radio hit that came out of a movie. Right, because he did, he wrote it for the film. Yeah. Music and lyrics. Uh, but I think that's also why it works, because even though Matchbox 20 was really more popular in the 90s, Rob Thomas has managed to, you know, break out of that and go above and beyond. And I, you know, it's because of things like this. He's just such a great musician that he yeah. can pull something like this off um, and get that great blend of it works as a cinematic score, but also works on the radio hit. Uh, no, I, I love this song. And to this day, like this is what really gives me the goosebumps at the end of this movie, even though you know what's going to happen, you still get all the feels, but it's because of this music. Final thoughts on Meet the Robinsons. Final thoughts. I had said it at the beginning of this review that I absolutely love this movie from the moment I saw it in theaters. Uh, but I was sort of afraid it wasn't going to hold up. I have rewatched it since that first viewing. Um, I'll rewatch it every couple of years. Uh and this time around, I was starting to feel like it was losing something, having seen it so many times, knowing what was going to happen. Uh, and I, I feel like a lot of that had to do with what I was sort of talking about before with, with Lewis's character and 
why can't he get adopted? And then why do the Robinsons want to adopt him? And I think that sort of weakens the story points a little bit. But I also feel like I am being overly critical because the bigger takeaway from this film is that you can rewatch it after you know what happens. And certain things still do land very hard. Certain things still do sucker punch you in the feelings a little bit. Um, And regardless of whether you know what's coming or not, it is still such a fun movie and the animation is beautiful. Um, And I still really love this movie. Maybe not as much as I did upon the first viewing because there's nothing like the big reveal. Uh, But I still think it holds up. I I still certainly enjoy watching it. And I think this is definitely a forgotten classic. It's a forgotten classic. Um, It's sort of a shame that it has become a forgotten classic. I feel like Disney kind of swept it under the rug because it made $10 million more at the box office than it cost to make. So that actually means that they lost money on the movie. Its reviews were not great. Um, it doesn't, it wasn't really that well received. There was supposed to be a sequel. It got canceled. Um, you know, I'd like to see this incorporated more into the parks. Um, I think that there are attractions here that are tailor-made for that open space where Stitch's Great Escape used to be in Tomorrowland. Ooh, love um, that. I think that you could easily put Meet the Robinsons in there. And now might be the time because I think things like Disney Plus are what give movies like this a second life. So um, it's not a perfect film, which I kind of felt going in. But when we sat to watch it this week, I said, oh, well, I know this is going to get a perfect score. And it didn't. Because upon multiple viewings, there are things that happen that kind of fall flat. There are things that happen that kind of go nowhere. There are things that happen that don't necessarily make sense, but not to the total detriment of the film. It's near perfect. That's the thing. It's like if that's what separates it from near perfect to perfect, near perfect is still a totally acceptable grade. I mean, there's been a handful of movies on this show that we've given a perfect score to. And with that being said, the movie has a ton of rewatchability, but similar to you, I don't watch it all that often. It's something I pop on every couple of years. And I sit back and I go, why am I watching this every couple of years? Why am I not watching this every couple of months? You know, I watch Summer Magic a couple of times a year. I watch Swiss Family Robinson a couple of times a year. I watch you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea. We watch Muppets like it's our last day on earth. Yeah. Well, what are we starting to connect here? We're watching movies that we graded as perfect over and over and over again. And that's the thing. Now, 181 episodes in, there's just the, the, again, the beautiful thing about Disney plus, and I've said it a dozen times is that you find these classics And when you have all of these classics at your fingertips, I'm more likely to go back and watch Treasure Island, another film that I believe we gave a a perfect score to, or at least I think I did. Um, 
or even like Mary Poppins. I've watched Mary Poppins more yeah. since we started doing this show in the four years we've been doing the show than I had in, in the entire rest of my life. So that's kind of why this one keeps falling to the back of the line. And in a way, it's kind of a shame. Like, I'm not going to go out of my way and be like, meet the Robinsons Monday. You know, like, it's not going <laughs> to be that. But I think this is a movie that does have a ton of rewatchability. And if you haven't watched it in a while, I would implore you to give it another viewing. And if you haven't seen it before, sorry we spoiled it, but you should know better by now. You should really go and watch it. But we want to know what you have to say about Meet the Robinsons. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me on any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you are looking for media kits, print or graphic designs, and if you are a Disney content creator... You are Kelly's specialty. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. You can go see everything that she has to offer, and it's really impressive work, at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. This is a parks-centric week in terms of news here on Monoreal Radio, starting with... It's, it's the... It's not the news that's at the top of my list, but I think it's the news that actually has me the most excited, and that it's that character meet and greets are coming back on April 18th. We were excited last week when they announced Hoop-dee-doo, but that like pales in and we love Hoop-dee-doo. That pales in comparison to the characters coming back. For people who don't or never really waited for characters, I mean, we did on our first trip together make sure we got the picture with Mickey, but otherwise we'll just sort of take our pictures as we're going past. So that's not something that has affected us that much in the past couple of years, but I'm excited and I am never going to take these characters for granted again. We don't stop to take character photos. It's not a part of the experience for us. I mean, I know people who go to these after hours events and spend five hours just taking pictures with rare characters. That's not what you and I would be doing. We'd be eating, drinking, and going on attractions that you can walk on instead of having to wait an hour to do. Actually, that's a lie because I was like, I will stand here forever for Jack Skellington. And we we did. Yeah. Well, that was different because at the time, if you didn't go to Vic, uh, Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party, you could only get Jack and Sally out in Disneyland in California. Right. That was different. But... Where it has upset me is, while it, it, it technically doesn't affect my trip, I'm sorry. I understand why we had to do it, but 
there is something to be said about the people watching at Walt Disney World when you get to see a kid meet Mickey Mouse for the first time, meet Donald Duck, meet Goofy, meet Pluto. The character breakfast. Having a character stand six feet from your table and wave and walk away, watching a five, six-year-old kid walk up to, you know, a stanchion. You can't get anywhere near the character. I'm not criticizing the decision as to why they did it. They had no choice but to do it. But it does my heart good. The Grinch's heart grew three (laughs) sizes that day. It does my heart good to know that starting on April 18th of 2022, character meet and greets are back and we are getting back to normal again. Yeah, I mean... Disney did a great job as far as the cavalcades, making sure that you still saw them. Yeah. Then once things starting to light started to lighten up a little bit, the uh, like we had the character breakfast at Topolino for the first time in October of 2020, and we still got great pictures. Like they did an awesome job, even though they couldn't come up to you, they made sure to like slow down, pause, strike a pose, so that you could get your pictures. And and it was fantastic, but that's always been good enough for me. For a first timer, or for a family taking your kids, like you, you have to go hug Mickey. You just do. Right. We also got the official opening date for Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind at Epcot Center. That's going to open on May 27th. We know that D23 is doing a preview for its gold members if you get tickets. They go on sale next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 10 a.m. Pacific. Um, it's a great deal, by the way. 35 bucks per person, only two people. You can only get two people in. $35 per person gets you into Epcot after 4 o'clock. You get a $20, a $20 food voucher. And after Harmonious, when the park closes, you get to do a preview of Guardians. It's a great deal. If you can do it, you should do it. Um, I am so excited that we finally have a date. The pass holders have, their dates are gone. The day is now blacked out, which you knew was going to happen. But I'm so excited to finally see what this attraction is going to be. Yes. It's, It's much needed. It's much needed on that side of the park. And you know what I like most of all? It means it's another set of construction walls that's coming down at Epcot. I'm very much excited for that. I also think this is a very cool perk that D23 members are getting. Oh, yeah. It's nice that they're they're able to do something like that. And there's a chance for like the average Joe to go on instead of, you know, having a media day. And then that's the first thing that's going to be. I, I'm wondering if if they learned a lesson from the Star Cruiser because the media day Nobody was really trusting the influencers because they felt like they had to be super positive about it. Uh, So I'm wondering if that's why they're they're just letting people who have really no horse in the race just go and ride it and and say their honest thoughts. Yeah, I uh, I like that they're doing it. I think for as much criticism as Disney has gotten recently about how it's treating its patrons, its annual pass holders, the fact that you're giving people something else and such a value, such a good value, yeah. um, 
I really love that this is the turn that they're taking. And then, like, bombshell of bombshells, we find out what it is the 80 acres of land that Disney bought down here is being turned into. Not a Marvel park. Not a Marvel park. Not a Marvel park. Um, But affordable housing. Um, 1,200 affordable units. This is not going to be the project that's happening in California over by Coachella. This is going to be actual affordable housing that cast members will have a shot at getting into, but the general public will have a shot at getting into it. And, you know, with the housing market being what it is nationwide, but specifically down here in Florida, you know, you and I have, we found out, you know, kind of the hard way what what the housing market down here is, but at least we got something and we love where we are. Um, it's good to see that Disney is sort of addressing sort of a bigger issue and they're taking care of their employees, which they've not been accused of doing recently, and they're kind of giving back to their hardcore fans, which... They've also not been accused of doing recently. So um, I think the this is a step in the right direction. And I think it's very exciting. It's going to sell. I mean, listen, it's probably sold out already. You're going to sell those units out quickly to be at the footprint of the Magic Kingdom, to be a stone's throw away and for it to be affordable. But I love that this is the step that they're taking. I do, too. Totally unexpected. And, you know... I like that they are sort of addressing the elephant in the room because you have Golden Oaks. You can live right there in a Disney-fied community, but if you can afford it. Uh, This is something we haven't seen from Disney in a really long time is throwing a bone to, to people who, you know, can't necessarily pay for it. Right. I mean, because that's the thing. As of recently, especially with the... uh inclusion of genie plus it's there's been a stigma around this has become a place for the wealthy so the fact that they're listening and i'm not sure that this wasn't their plan the whole time this may not have been their plan the whole time um but the fact that clearly somebody is listening maybe i'm I'm, I'm not going to hedge my bets on this but maybe it's the person that we think doesn't listen Maybe somebody's listening, and I think that if you're a Disney fan, if you're a Disney content creator, if you're an annual pass holder, that's the big thing right now. You just want to feel that somebody is listening to you, because we came out of the Iger years where everybody was listening to you, and it's kind of been this weird touch and go for the last few years. Some of that is the company's fault, some of it isn't. I think that if this... And the Guardians thing, you could say it's not really a big deal. I think it is a big deal. I think that value on the dollar to get in and get a preview, I think it's a big deal. The fact that you use the word value, which is a word we have not said on this show in a very long time, that's that's a huge deal. Um, But I am curious to know whether this is a knee-jerk reaction to things like the Star Cruiser and what people are saying about Disney catering to the wealthy, or if this has been there the entire time. But if this was the plan the entire time, why wouldn't you have released that along with the Star Cruiser to sort of balance that out? Right. You would have avoided a lot of negative criticism. Perhaps. I mean, I don't want to sit here and speculate completely. That's what the internet is for. But (laughs) it's... 
I feel like somebody's listening to us. I don't know who it is. I hope. I hope it's the. I hope it's the man on top. But somebody I feel is starting to listen. And let's hope that in this return to normal, if people are listening, and I, I don't want to just throw away Disney Fifty because we shouldn't just throw away Disney Fifty. But I think that once you get past this fiftieth anniversary. I think it's safe to assume a lot of things are going to start coming back down to normal. I think the demand on the parks isn't going to be quite as high. I think the demand on the staff isn't going to be quite as high, the transportation, et cetera, and so forth. Um, I, I think that when I say a return to normal, I'm not just speaking about this post-pandemic world. I'm talking about I think we're starting to just see a return to Disney as we knew it, and I think that's a very welcome change. I agree. Wow, that felt good to not JPEG bash for once. Let's hope that those days are coming to an end. I feel like a better person, though. Yeah, I feel like I just went to therapy. (laughs) But we want to know what you have to say about the news this week, about the new housing that's coming to Disney, about the opening date for Guardians, about the character meet and greets coming back. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I just told you about all that social media. We are on TikTok as well at Monoreal Radio. I just gave you the email address. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links to everything monoreal radio it is online at monorealradio.com for jackie i'm sean have a magical week everyone on behalf of monoreal radio we'd like to thank you for joining us we'll see you at the movies the stuff dreams are made of